Well, it's fun, you know, starting many of my um, webinars with the question, you know, like, do you believe that customers have latent yeah. needs? And then is there agreement on what a need is? Like we did this yesterday. And if 90% of your audience is saying, hey, we believe that there's latent needs and we don't agree on what a need is, they're, they're, they're admitting the root oh, cause yeah. of the issue, right? I mean, there yeah. it is right there. So now it's a matter of replacing it and saying, well, there is no such thing as latent. Here's why. And here's how you should think about needs. Welcome to the Product Quest Podcast. Thank you for joining us on our journey to better understand innovation and product strategy. My name is Scott Burleson, and joining me as always, my co-host Jan Vermuth and Jonathan Edwards. Today, we welcome our super special guest, Tony Owick. If you've worked in, read about, or even heard about Jobs Be Done, you know his name. Tony is the creator of outcome-driven innovation known as ODI. ODI takes this theory this philosophy of jobs be done and presents it as a repeatable process. On a personal level, I was trying to figure out this innovation thing when a friend recommended Tony's 2005 book, What Customers Want. And what I found there it changed my career and honestly changed my life. Tony's well-published many places, many places, but the HBR articles turn customer input into innovation and the customer-centered innovation map are classic reads in our field. I could say a whole lot more, but I'd rather... Uh, not waste any more everybody's time. Let's hear from the man himself. Tony Owick, welcome to the Product Quest podcast. Scott, thanks so much. I appreciate the invite. And Jan, John, Jonathan, it's great seeing you guys. Thank you. Great seeing you. And, get, and, and to kick things off, Tony, in the early 80s, I had a computer I absolutely loved. The IBM PC Junior, I wrote basic programs on it. I did my Eagle project on it. and, and um, But then later, I, I um, you had some stories you told where you were a product leader in that, which helped um, lead to the development of ODI. I wonder if you could share, uh, share that story with us. Well, sure. Well, Scott, it's interesting to find out that that's where that one... <laughs> PC Junior was sold. That's where it went. <laughs> I love it. I'm glad, I'm glad you made use of it. But it, you're right. I mean, my career started back um, in, in IBM. I worked there from 1981 until 1991. And um, I worked uh, hard and feverishly to get into this new secret club um, that was operating under, like in stealth mode, and developing IBM's home computer, uh, which was the PC Junior. And uh, yeah, I spent a couple of years um, on the manufacturing side of it because I have a mechanical engineering degree. Uh, so I was hired as a manufacturing engineer to set up there the line, the equipment. We went up to Lewisburg, Tennessee every week to build this plant from scratch. And you know, we were hoping to produce tens of thousands of machines per day. So there, there it was, we laid everything out. And the, uh, the, the day, after we introduced the PC Junior product, the, the headlines in the Wall Street Journal read, the PC Junior is a flop. And I thought, well, how did they get that so wrong? Of course it's not a flop. <laughs> but uh, it was actually the other way around. Shame on us. Uh, it was a flop, right? And it took us months to you know, reconcile what had happened. And as an engineer, I thought, well, you know, how can a company like IBM and all its vast resources have done uh, something like this made such a mistake. Well, as I looked around, of course, it's not just IBM that you know succumbs to problems like that. It's pretty much every company. I didn't know that at the time. That was my my first at bat, really. 
Uh, and I started looking around IBM uh, and, and their product planning uh, group to see uh, if I could work over there and come up with a better way to innovate. So after that failure in 1984, I started as a product planner and spent the rest of my career as a product planner at IBM. And my sole purpose was to figure out a, a better way to innovate. And at the time, and I think you lived through some of this too, Scott, uh, you know, were the introduction of voice of the customer and conjoint analysis and uh, QFD, you know, was some of the tools that we started with. But, you know, I quickly realized that they're just, you know, incompatible tools that aren't really getting the, the innovation job done and that we have to think about it much differently. So that that spurred me to, like, at least recognize the problem and from there on, you know, try to search for the answer, right? And that's, uh, it was basically a 1989-ish, 1990 timeframe where it occurred to me that we have uh, a, another path to take. And, and you've seen uh, Theodore Leverett's quote, right? People don't want the quarter inch trail, they want the quarter inch hole. I had seen that. I think that came out in 62 in the HBR piece, right? Um, so I had seen that for decades. And I'm, it finally occurred to me as a manufacturing engineer, I thought, you know what? We don't have to talk about products with customers. If they're trying to get something done, let's go study what they're trying to get done as a process, just like a manufacturing process, right? And being from manufacturing, I thought, hey, we could just plot out all the metrics people are trying to achieve, uh, or try, yeah, trying to achieve as they go about and get the job done. And I didn't know if that would work, but it sounded good. Because, right? <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll go back to the IBM story for a second. Um, you know, when I read that in the Wall Street Journal and realized they were right, then I started thinking, what metrics were the were the uh, authors using to judge the PC Junior and its failure? And I thought, wow, if we'd only known what those metrics were going to be two years ago, we could have just designed the product around those metrics. And you know, the PC Junior is the greatest thing since sliced bread would have been a much better headline. Um, so I, I was trying to tie these uh, these issues together, right? So I knew that people were using metrics to judge value. I was trying to figure out what were those metrics, and then then it kind of clicked. Like if we could just study the underlying process that people are executing, like creating the quarter-inch hole, let's go study creating a quarter-inch hole and what are all the metrics people use to measure success. And when that kicked in, I, I have to say, I, so I was on assignment uh, for IBM in uh, Australia at the time. I was there for a month and a half assignment doing product planning and strategy work. And uh, when that thought kicked in, I swear, I, I don't think I slept more than two hours a night for the next month because I was just, I was already working with a team at IBM to come up with a product strategy. So I immediately put it into action and started working through the details and and it, it worked beautifully, right? I was trying to make the pieces come together. There were a lot of loose ends, of course, uh, being the first time through, but I felt that the the nuggets were there, right? That the basics were there to say, there are metrics people use to measure value. They are knowable. We can get them way in advance of product launch and even product development, and we can design products around those metrics. Now, so that's that's the basis for success, right? Everything else that's happened since, and of course, is just lots of details to make it all come together. But conceptually, uh, you know, that that was it in a nutshell. Can I maybe already? 
jump in on the, I, I, I'm so, maybe I, so I need probably, Scott, you need to kind of tame me now, but I, I, I will have a tendency to jump in probably almost any time. But, but what I really love about the description of this story, and I would wonder if you could elaborate a bit more on this is, well, today it seems more and more accepted to say, well, innovation is just like you're describing the PC junior story. It's just, you throw something on the market and fail fast. And then that's what innovation is about. So I would really like where where did, where did this come from? Your absolutely right conviction that this there needs to be a better way. We need to improve that process of of innovation sure. itself. Well, sure. So you know, let's take the the approach you're talking about because it's followed by a lot of people. It's a technology first approach. Even in the lean startup space, what they generally do is they uh, uh, hypothesize markets and products and customer needs all at once up front, and they go through this recursive iterative process of pivoting and failing fast to try to find product market fit. Now, that is a really inefficient way of understanding customer needs is the way I think about it, right? Because every time you go through an iteration, you're going back to customers and you're learning something. Then you come back and make adjustments and then you go out and you learn something and so on. But what are you learning every time you go out? What what you're learning are the customer's needs, right? So if you're in that type of process, you're slowly figuring out product market fit because you're learning what the customer's needs are in solution space, right? Yeah. So th- that's the inefficiency. And I thought you could be guessing forever because you're in this iterative process. Uh, think about lean startup. You're hypothesizing the market, the product, and the needs all at once. So it's like solving an, uh, an extremely complex equation with no constants in the equation. Yeah. They're all variables and you just toss them up there and hoping they come together uh, becomes really hard. So what we recommend now, of course, is to, let's just look at one variable at a time. Let's define the market first. Let's just do that one thing, right? Then you can define the needs in the market that you know exists. And now when you know what the unmet needs are, then of course you can devise a solution that addresses the unmet needs. I mean, this is not rocket science, right? It's, <laughs> it's marketing one-on-one logic, right yeah. uh, the logic's there what's what's hard is making it work right and i think that's some of what we want to talk about today is why is it so hard to get people over this hump like i've, I've been saying this for 30 years right yeah let's go define a market as a group of people and a job to be done let's figure out what their needs are which are unmet if there's segments of people with different unmet needs all before we come up with the concept right because to me the goal of innovation like in the PC Junior uh, case, would be, hey, I want to conceptualize a product that I know is going to win in the market before I start developing it. That's a good innovation process, right? I've conceptualized something I know is going to win. I'm very confident before I even start spending money on creating it. So um, that's the way I view it, right? And and everything uh, everything I've worked on in uh, in ODI and jobs for done space is to make that happen. Is you know, how do I turn that into a reality? so we don't have to guess so the underlying assumption uh, is that the needs and the solution can be separated into the living in different spaces Um, i wondered if you could talk a bit about this because um, this is one of the core tenets of jobs to be done and really attracted me at the beginning to this approach. This idea that you have firstly well-defined needs and secondly, 
you have this separation between um, um, needs that are constant in time. I'll let you explain a bit more about, about that, that idea. Yeah. I love the question because uh, I think you're on you know, one of the key points here, and that is the separation between problem space and solution space. And uh, for most people, I think it's a very blurred line. So it's yeah. extraordinarily hard. Um, you know, I did a webinar yesterday and we asked the audience, of, there were several hundred people in the audience. We asked them, uh, do you do you think that customers have latent needs? Yes or no? And about 90% said, yes, I think customers have latent needs. These are needs that they don't even think they have. Okay. And then we asked a question, uh, within your product team, is there agreement on what a customer need even is? I've been asking this question for years. And the answer, 90% of them, no, no. 90% of the product team saying, we don't even agree on what a customer need is. So I think this is part of the problem, of course, right? If everyone's trying to uh, come up with solutions that satisfy needs and we can't agree on what a need is, then of course we can't agree on what the needs are or which are unmet or if there's segments of people with different unmet needs or what the best solution is, right? So we have to come back and solve this root cause issue of, what is a customer need? And so when you start defining needs, uh, then you get into some of these great stories of you know, like Henry Ford supposedly saying, you know, if I asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. And then Steve Jobs comes along and says, you know, people don't know what they want until they see it. Well, a lot of people use those quotes as justification to do ideas first stuff. They go, hey, customers can't tell us what they want so why are we talking to them let's go build what we want and then you know create demand for our products which of course is not at all what steve jobs or thomas Edison or uh henry ford were saying what they were saying is people don't know what solutions they want right and they can't articulate the best solutions uh, but as we know you know solutions aren't needs right and of course it's not up to customers to come up with the best solutions that's our jobs as innovators right is to figure out what is the best solution? So getting people to believe that, hey, you know what? There's no such thing as latent needs. If you think there's latent needs, you're in solution space, right? People don't know what solutions they want, but they surely know what they're trying to achieve, right? They're trying to create the quarter inch hole, right? Do they know what metrics they're using to measure success? Of course, you're cooking a meal. You may not know that the microwave is some great new technology, but you do know that you're trying to minimize the time it takes to cook a meal and minimize the likelihood of overcooking or undercooking, uh, minimize the likelihood that it's cooked unevenly. You know, these are sets of metrics that people use to describe success at cooking for decades or centuries for that matter. And the um, just to come back to the iterative approach, uh, the lean startup, uh, et cetera, the, those kinds of approaches, they were developed in reaction to what people generically call a waterfall approach, waterfall models. Um, can you tell us maybe the difference between, in your view, what between a, a waterfall model and the problems that the iterative uh, approaches were trying to solve in that respect and jobs to be done or, yeah. or ODI? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, um, I, I think part of the problem is that, um, let's let's start by defining the innovation process, right? Mm -hmm. And then you can see where some of the issues arise. So I, I, I think the innovation process is everything that happens before the development process. 
right? And the output of the innovation process, as I said, is a product you know with a high level of certainty is going to win in the market before you start developing it. So you're not you're not iterating on the product in development, right? It's too late. If you're iterating in development, that means you didn't do a good job in the innovation process. Well, this gets all conflated and confused, right? Because now, because people aren't putting products that they know will win into development, what happens in development is now what should have happened up in the innovation space. So now you have designers uh, going through uh, and trying to figure out what the customer's needs are. They're all trying to do all the product planning work that should have been done up front. And and we're forcing designers, CX folks, and so on to become product planners. I mean, this is all a huge mistake, right? We should keep all this separate. There should be a planning team up front that conceptualizes the winning product. There should be a development team that goes build the product that someone said is going to win, right? And they, of course, have to design it. And they have to address all the, what we call consumption chain jobs. They have to make it easy to install and set up and interface with and maintain, support and upgrade and so on. So there's still a bunch of work that the designers have to do to make sure this product is going to work before it's launched. Right. So I think I think that conflation is is an issue. I also think that um, you know there's there's different customers uh, that 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 are in the ecosystem as well. You have the external customer who's using the product to get a job done, who we're studying so we can create the right product. Then you have I call it the product lifecycle support team. All these people who have to support the product throughout its consumption, you know, helping to install it or set it up and maintain it, upgrade it, dispose of it, and so on. And you have the buyer. And the buyer is not always the person using the product or a person supporting the product. That's often a different group of people. And their needs are different than the people who are using the product. So I think separating all this out into its distinct categories, like we've done with our, we call it the jobs be done uh, needs framework, it lays all this out so that you can see the ecosystem, you can see who the different customers are, and you can understand the role they play in the grand scheme of things so that you don't conflate all this stuff. Like without any of this definition, uh, you know, it, it becomes extremely complicated and confusing, right? And I, I think that's why you're seeing these distinctions being made with, you know, planning in a waterfall versus the way we're describing it here. But I like just breaking it out into pieces like who's responsible for what in terms of the grand schemes of things when getting the job done. Innovation team comes up with the product concept. Development team develops the concept so it's easily consumable. And then the launch team is aiming this, uh, their, uh, their value proposition, one at the buyer, one at the job executor so that both parties know what they're going to get from the solution. I think this is one of the great innovations of ODI is this precision in language. What's the core job? Who's the job? A definition of a market that we can now have this conversation. When we see a market, we know what we're talking about. We're talking about the buyer consumption jobs that just that precision in language, I think is a huge huge contribution to the innovation field. Uh, One thing I'm fascinated by, though, if we we back up, I don't know, nearly 20 years, 
All the qualitative interviewers were all teaching about latent needs, unarticulated needs. That was part of their curriculum. And there was, to my, at least as far as I could tell, my little corner of the world, there was one person saying there are no latent needs, there are no unarticulated needs, and it was you, and you were boldly saying it. What was your, in? how did you sort of, and, and it was one of those things, I remember attending your course, I still believed it, latent needs. And I have a hard time relating to a younger me with that idea in my head. But so my question for you is, what what was that breakthrough for you or how did or was there something you read or how did you make that breakthrough to to see that this thing that was just it was accepted as truth um that was actually not there was a flaw in it well i i think it was um, my ability just to look at everything through this other lens like as soon as i said hey i'm not going to look at markets through the lens of the drill maker i'm going to look at a market through the lens of the hole maker mm -hmm. And I just put myself in that position and, and said, so what did things look like from over here? And it was, wow, they look a lot different, right? I'm not in the drill market, right? I'm in the market of helping tradesmen create a quarter inch hole, right? Are my competing products all drills? No, they're anything that could create a quarter inch hole, right? How should I define needs? Should I define it on how to make a better drill? No, I should define it on how to create a better quarter inch hole, right? And as... As I just stood in that space and looked at everything and observed everything through that space, these fallacies became obvious to me, right? That people have latent needs. I said, the only reason to ever think that is if you're talking about solutions, like I already described, right? You're conflating solutions with needs, or you think a solution is a need. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly what people are thinking, but um, if you conflate the two, you're going to walk away thinking there are latent needs, because certainly people don't know what solutions they want. But as I said, a solution is not a need, right? So once once you get over that, you can kind of move forward and say, okay, if there is no latent needs, I should stop saying that, right? And I shouldn't let other people get away with saying that there are latent needs and people don't know what they want. It makes it sound arrogant. I, I always thought, that's so arrogant. It's like, are people saying, I don't know my needs? I think I do. I really think I do, right? And um, so I, I just never came to that kind of status quo, right? I, was, I guess I always had a little bit of rebel in me and I just don't blindly believe things that I think aren't true, right? So, and that's a good example. And, and what I discovered too is a lot of tools were solution-based. Like you look at the Kano model, for example, that was supposed to be all about customer needs. But when you talk about exciters and delighters and must-haves, that's all language and solution space, right? That's features you're talking about. So even those types of models that were supposed to be talking about needs, we're really talking about solutions. So all this stuff is just reinforced to have this solution mindset. And I think you know, that's why you see today, people are still stuck in that ideas first mindset and they won't take the time or don't have the discipline to do exactly what we've been describing here for years. You know, I guess at the time, you know, early 2000s, I'm a product manager with John Deere. I'm I'm learning about the Kano model. I'm learning about QFD. I'm learning about all these things. And by the way, incidentally, I was a manufacturing engineer 10 years before that. 
very logical, damning, I, I, very much like you, I guess. I absolutely loved it. Find the waste, you know, make things more predictable, make, make things faster. And it was like, and I just go right there in the factory. The research is simple. They're all right there, you know. Yeah. Um, and so I think at some point connecting, when I connected that manufacturing engineering to that mess, part of what you helped me do or uh, connect it to this world of innovation. But I, but back there, I mean, it's when every single qualitative le- teacher is talking or in universities, there, there's these big papers by fancy professors that were referring to uh, latent needs and unarticulated needs. Um, now when people ask me, it's like, when you go to a doctor, they ask you what you're there for. Do you say, I don't know. I just wandered in off the street. It's, it's absolutely, it's like when the scales drop off your eyes or you take the red pill, you, you can't see it the other way again. But what, but what's so impressive to me is you were truly alone, uh, in, in boldly saying it back then. I, I find that, uh, so you provided a lot of clarity. QFD. Another thing I'll throw this out real quickly is, uh, the QFD. We were wrestling with using that at John Deere. I was like, man, this thing, you can do a little matrix to design a handle and that works fine. But if you try to do it bigger, the thing blows up. It becomes so unwieldy. And when you had a when you had um, sort of a critical position on QFD, that also that that also drew me more in. Well, Scott, you know, just to talk about that for a second because I yeah. think it was an interesting part of the evolution. Uh, I've done uh, completed hundreds of QFD matrices back mm-hmm. in that time frame. Yeah, I used to incorporate that in the process, and because I, I like the general. Uh, concept that says, yeah. hey, let's just put the customer need and then put right. the metric you can measure and control in the design of the product. Now, what happened over the years is I, my met my, you know, when you look at all the relationships in that yeah. giant <laughs> matrix, <laughs> what happened over time is I was getting less and less relationships. Mm. It's because the metrics and the needs were these one-on-one things. And it, it, then it occurred to me, this was probably around 1990 time frame. It occurs to me that if I define needs as the metrics that I can measure and control in the design of the product, then I can just skip this whole QFD thing, which turned out to be true, right? So that that uh, allowed to allowed us to really make QFD obsolete when it and when it comes to you know, product innovation. And we put out uh, Rick Norman and I uh, and Richard Zoltner, all folks in this space, historic names. Um, put together a, a white paper uh, years back that talked about uh, disassembling or I forget how we word it, disassemble the house of quality or something like that, uh, which said, Hey, you don't, you don't need this for product innovation, right? It's nice for downstream deployment, but you can skip it up front If you define a need as a desired outcome, right? This again goes to what you're pointing out, Scott, you know, uh, defining everything, defining all the pieces is critical because we're, we're creating a system here that works together, right? It's a comprehensive end-to-end system, and it's all seen through the same lens, mm-hmm. and it, all the pieces have to fit together. If they don't, the system doesn't work. And I, I think what we've done over the years is just worked hard to perfect all these little pieces of the system so you could execute the entire process in problem space rather than solution space. And Jonathan, that goes back to your point before, you know, separating the two. Companies generally start in solution space, right? They're either in a market or they have an idea for a product and now they want to go do something. The first step that we go through is to take them from product space into problem space, right? We say, okay, 
you're trying to create a circular saw. Well, who's using circular saws? Well, it's roofers, it's framers, it's general contractors. All right. So it's tradesmen, right? Yeah. Okay. It's tradesmen. And what job are they trying to do? Let's go talk to them. They're using a circular saw to cut plywood and two by fours. But what else are they using? They're using T-squares. They're using tape, measuring tape. They're using pencils. Why are they doing all this stuff? It's because they're trying to cut a piece of wood in a straight line, right? That's it. So you got tradesmen trying to cut wood in a straight line. So what you've just done there is you've gone from product space into problem space, right? And now you continue all the rest of the analysis in problem space. I can look at, I can go talk to tradesmen and ask them about cutting a piece of wood in a straight line. I figure out what metrics they're trying to achieve along each step of the way. I can quantify them to figure out which are unmet. I can segment around them to see if there's segments of tradesmen with different unmet needs. And then I can put my strategy together. And then I go back into solution space. Right. So all the analysis is done in problem space. And then you convert back into the solution space. So in the end, and we see this all the time, like the executives don't want to see the sausage making in between. What they want to see is what is the product that's going to win in the marketplace? Right. It's the exact thing I said before. And entrepreneurs do this too. They're in front of their investors all the time, VCs. The VCs are saying, Show me your product. Why do you think that's going to win in the marketplace? And what we're doing here is providing a way to show you, right? Um, I know it's going to win the marketplace because it has this set of features. Well, how do you know that's the right set of features? Well, it's because it addresses these outcomes. How do you know they're the right outcomes? Well, because we quantify them. We found a segment of the market that's 50% of people, and they have these 14 minute needs. Well, how did you figure that out? Well, we studied the job that they're trying to get done, and this is, you know, and this is what we've concluded. Right? It's so, a very so compelling the, story. Yeah, go ahead, John. The idea of um, having metrics to measure different kind of solution presupposes that these metrics will be the same uh, across the solution space. We can use if we want to. We we can compare with the same metrics different kinds of. Uh, of solutions and i've often heard from from one of the first things people will say when they they get into jobs to be done and start asking questions is okay but you know are the are the desired outcomes or the needs really solution independent and can can we really separate the problem space and the solution space and i was wondering what you would say to people who ask this question. So typically, I'll give maybe an example. Um, Internet of Things is trendy, has been trendy for, for some time, or people are trying to implement it. And so you have a coffee, you have a, a water boiler, and now suddenly you want to add an app to the to the water boiler. So you can, <laughs> that's, many people are thinking about these kinds of of innovations, but adding digital functionalities to a product, of course, will add their own um, their own outcomes or their own metrics. So when you change the product, some kind of metrics so will also appear or or disappear. 
what what do you do you say to that how how yeah. to what extent can we actually really separate yeah. the the product problem and solutions yeah that's a great question uh and, and what you've done there is um is interesting because what what you what you did is you conflated um innovation with product development so let me explain um in the innovation space you're trying to come up with a solution that addresses unmet needs right there is no solution right so you're not uh, emboldened you're not constrained by any solution you're not in solution space right so and then we talked once you have the solution now you start developing the product now it's developers who are trying to make the product easy to install and set up and interface with and maintain and upgrade they're assuming a product right they're assuming a product because the product was given to them by the innovation team so at that point they're assuming a product right but in the innovation space they're not assuming a product because the product has not been conceptualized yet so what that says to us is in the innovation space when you're focused on the job executor you can conceptualize uh, products based on metrics that are completely solution agnostic. As soon as you conceptualize the product, now everything's focused on designing that product. So now you do have a product in mind and you could state outcomes that are product specific because you know what the product is, right? That's the difference, right? Is that helpful? So when I read what customers want, and there's this uh, great example with the um, the circular saw. Yeah. Um, one of my first, so, so I, I I was really into the book because it, it was like yes yes yes. I everything I read I was like this is great. And then when I got to that example, I kind of was a bit um, taken aback by the fact that some of the needs were quite related to the the product itself so i don't yeah. remember now exactly what the yeah. the needs were but i kind of wondered hmm but this seems very related to this specific uh, solution yeah. and uh, and i think probably many people have since then i've heard many people talk about this and yeah. uh, maybe you can say something yeah absolutely you've observed it uh, exactly right they, they there were outcomes mixed in there uh, that was solution oriented with outcomes that weren't solution oriented. And keep in mind that was back in 2005, and at at that time frame we were talking about consumption jobs versus mm. core jobs, but in our research we combined them together, right? So we would mix them up. Now we don't. We actually keep them separate so that we don't conflate or confuse any any of this, right? But in the in the Bosch in the Bosch case, it was kind of interesting because they knew they were going to create a circular saw, right? But they didn't know what features were going to go on it. But still, all the all the outcomes relating to cut the wood in a straight line were solution agnostic. But then you captured outcomes on interfacing with the saw, storing it, transporting it, maintaining it. So you saw outcomes related to the consumption in there as well, right? And so if you look at them all together, you go, wow, there's, I, I, I'd walk away with the same conclusion, right? You say there's inconsistency here, but if you work to separate them out like we do now, like in the needs framework, then, then they're separate, right? And we work to do that. Now it's a bit more disciplined. 2005, what was that? We got 17 years Some ago. Time ago. <laughs> so, so we've we've learned a little bit since then, and we try to make it a bit more precise. But um, it's a great question because if that's uh, you know 
adding confusion to understanding the approach, then you know, then uh, try to resolve that is really important. So I, I appreciate you bringing that up. Can I just maybe maybe it's for, just for my clarification or my 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 understanding? So is it is it that you now would say well there there are no consumption related outcomes or it's it, you have to separate those very very strictly? Okay, yes, you can kind of define. I mean, you can define your job around a, a solution. I mean, it's not it's not maybe you shouldn't do this, but or would you say there is there there are no consumption chain jobs or consumption chain outcomes, sorry, at, at all? No, there are, right. I just separate them. Okay. Uh, now, in, in this webinar here, can I bring up a slide and show something? Absolutely, yes, sure. Okay, well, let me do that because I think that would help to explain what I'm talking about. That's here. always a good moment where we can also <laughs> say that all of our podcasts are on the YouTube channel, so that's a good... <laughs> okay, so um, here's my uh, needs framework. So this, I use this in a lot of conversations with clients as they're trying to figure out like, mm. well, what, what the heck's going on here? So uh, what we have is we have the job executor, right? So the job executor is trying to get the core job done, right? And that core job done consists of many job steps. And this is what we describe in the uh, yeah. universal job map article in HBR. And then beyond that, you know, each of these has a set of outcomes, right? Yeah. So if you're trying to create a better product, if you're trying to conceptualize a product that you know is going to win in the market before the development begins, this is what you'd study, right? You yeah. may also study related jobs, and you may also study emotional jobs too. So generally speaking, if we're going to have, if we're going to focus on the job executor, we'll get all these inputs, put them in a survey figure out where the unmet needs are, figure out where the related jobs are, what the emotional jobs are. Okay. Now let's move on to that for a second. Now you also have, huh, you also have the product life cycle support team, right? So these are the consumption chain jobs. Uh, you have to install the product. You have to set it up, learn how to use it, interface with it, transport it, store it, maintain it. You know, you get the general idea, right? Yeah. dispose of it and you can pick and choose which of these consumption jobs you want to go study right these are in solution space right you're only going to do this assuming some solution you can't do this if there's no solution because you don't you, you, you can't raise nothing to store there's this <laughs> you haven't yeah you, know, you don't even know if there's storage yet right or storage yeah. need uh, so uh, but 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 there are consumption chain jobs and there's these needs, right? And then of course you have the, the last piece, which is purchase decision maker, right? And they have financial jobs and financial outcomes that they're trying to achieve. And now the interesting thing is in, um, in, in B2B, all these people are different, Like right? The job executor is different than, and you could have, one person installing the product, someone else cleaning it, someone else repairing it, right? Someone else buying it. Yeah. But in, in the B2C space, it's often the same person who does everything, right? The consumer is using it. They, they're, they're consuming it. They're buying it. And so um, it, you just have to decide. Um, yeah. So I have a bit you know, of a, a silly, silly question, which sure. is um, um, if everyone uh applied 
the 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 jobs to be done framework odi framework uh, perfectly would they all end up building the same product no great question uh i've i've, I've said this going back years um all else being equal right all else, if everyone had the same odi inputs the most creative people are going to win right mm. it's going to be the people who come up with the best solutions to address those needs that will win in the marketplace Right. So it is going to come down to creativity, right? And the ability to conceptualize products and services and features that can address very specific needs. So, um, yeah, it, it will come back to that. It, everything else given, uh, you know, being equal. One of the essential. That's very interesting. Sorry, go ahead, Jan. No, 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 no. Well, it just, I mean, what I think is what what I really like about well, there's I mean there is a buffet of things we could go back to, but but what I really like about this now is that <clears throat> well, there is no one to no direct relation between an unmet need and its solution. I think that is that is how I would like. To, there is no so even if you have like a perfectly measured needs out there of the market, it it doesn't lend itself directly to a solution. Is that is that kind of what you're saying so there still it depends on how creative yeah. are you or maybe how creative also does your company allow you to be i mean that can also be have some constraints uh, and that then depends that then still influences a lot that kind of the product success in the end yeah that's absolutely right yep and what i what i often say is you know what companies would do exceptionally well at innovation if if they would just make sure their product teams understood all the customers needs so yeah. when, when you look at the numbers i told you earlier you know 90 percent of product teams don't agree on what a need is well of course then that, that nobody agrees on what the needs are no one agrees on what needs are unmet no one agrees on if there's segments of people with different unmet needs that's the problem that management has to work to fix so if they could uh, insert people into their organization it doesn't have to be hundreds of people it can be a handful of people that know how to do ODI and know how to capture outcomes in this fashion and just present this form of information to their product teams, that's transformational, right? Because now you can align the entire organization around a common set uh, of unmet, of customer needs and agree on what you're unmet. So now what you're debating is not what a customer need is. You're debating what the best solution is, which is what the organization should be doing, right? Yeah. But they're spending so much time on these other issues. And this amazes me. I've been talking about this for 30 years. Why isn't everybody talking about what is the best way to define a customer need, right? That's where we spent 30 years trying to figure out how to best define a customer need. Because a needs, a needs a statement. It's a sentence, right? That has to communicate information from the customer to the innovator. So what what does the innovator want to know that will help them innovate, right? Think of it like that. Well, we laid out the criteria, right? Well, first off, we need one set of needs. We don't we don't want a set of needs for sales and one for marketing, one for development. Aren't so it has to span all disciplines. They have to be stable over time, as we talked about. They have to be solution agnostic. They have to be measurable and controllable. They have to be valid across multiple geographies. They have to communicate how to help get a job done better. They got to be tied to the customer's job to be done. So when you lay out all the criteria for perfect need statement, then you can go create the need statements and try different statements. 
and Scott, you remember this. I know we worked with Microsoft back in the uh, early 2000s on over 40 different projects. And we we would test them. We'd run different uh, surveys with different variations of statements to see which ones gave us the best discrimination. And this is why we ended up where we are today, right? Because we, we know that being very precise and putting these statements together and using the language we propose is really important. And if you start fiddling around with it, like I see a lot of people doing, they say, well, you have minimized as the way you introduce your statements, but we'll just use reduce or increase or maximize or well, it's just, you know, what, what difference does one word make? Well, what we learned is it makes a hell of a lot of difference. <laughs> when you go to prioritize these needs and you ask people to tell you, well, how important is it that you eliminate the time it takes to do something? Well, that's not as important in many cases. It's just minimizing the time it takes to do something. You start getting yourself into these jams that are unnecessary, right? Just like any other process, outcome statements have to be a consistent, predictable input into the process. Otherwise, you're, in, you're inserting variation into the process. I know we get criticized for the way we put our statements. A lot of people say, the customers wouldn't say that. Why don't we just use the actual voice of the customer? Well, here's why, because the voice of the customer will not yield the perfect input into innovation. They're not trying to, they're not trying to hand you a tidbit of information that's going to make you a great innovator. They're just talking about whatever they want to talk about, right? And in customer interviews, this always amazes me too. In most customer interviews, the interviewer and the interviewee don't know what input you're looking for. Yeah. So how do you know when you come up with the right input? So... I believe that both the interviewer and the interviewee should know what you're looking for. And this this is why when we do our interviews, we're typing stuff in, we're showing the person what we're typing in. So they know what we're looking for. They know the format we're trying to capture it in. We'll even explain it to them. So 10, 15 minutes into a conversation, they're talking about their needs in our language, which is exactly what we want, right? And of course, that can never happen if neither party knows what a need is. Like I said, I've been preaching stuff for 30 years. This is such common sense. And the fact that we're still debating this stuff and people don't do this is just mind-numbing. Certainly those of us that have been been reading your materials for a long time, one of the big things you'd notice is 15 years ago, it was increase or minimize. And now I believe it's more more minimized. Could you tell us more about that evolution in your thinking? Yeah. Yeah. I love that question, Scott, because, you know, you had influence in that as well. Um, In your book, you talked about perfection being the removal of all imperfections. I agree with that. Uh, And I had someone explain that 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 to me that they said, you know, so what you're saying is satisfaction comes from the result of eliminating all dissatisfaction. I thought, yeah, that's pretty much it. So let's step it back a bit and say, and say, okay, if I'm trying to get a job done perfectly, what does that mean? Well, as an engineer, you know this, right? There's three ways to get a, execute a process better. One is faster. That's why we automate. A second is with no variation. That's why we do statistical process control. And the other is to get the perfect result, which is why we have Six Sigma, right? So these are sciences for all these three ways to get a job done better, right? So what that means is we're trying to eliminate things that take time. We're trying to eliminate things that cause variability. We're trying to eliminate things that cause a bad result. We're trying to remove the imperfections, right? So the best way to do that is to lay out these statements with the word minimize, right? 
let's minimize the time it takes to do X that will that will remove the imperfection. Let's minimize the likelihood that this bad thing happens. That will minimize the likelihood of the imperfection, right? Let's minimize the likelihood that the thing that causes a bad result is eliminated, right? So we're trying to remove all these imperfections from the process and the language works perfectly. And, and I like it for two reasons. One is it makes it a lot easier to teach people how to capture outcomes because we're not debating what the first word is, right? Or the metric. It's always minimize the time it takes to do something or minimize the likelihood that some bad thing is happening. So we've narrowed it down to that. So now it's easier to understand and it's easier to execute. So now as an interviewer, you know, all you're listening for is what we call the object of control. You know, what are they trying to minimize the time of, right? What is it that, what bad thing are they trying to prevent from happening? And so following the constructs we've laid out here really has turned uh, this into a science. We're trying to take the, the key input into the innovation process, which is the customer need statement, and perfect it. I think, can I, think I sorry, I, was going, I think that's one of the biggest, most important ideas I've ever heard. Maybe rivaling jobs we've done itself, that what we're trying to, well, you, you can't really separate from jobs we've done totally, but you know, once you understand what they're trying to do, then our, our, then what you're really trying to do is pull the inner, what are all the imperfections, what goes wrong? It's a mentality I take with me into my qualitative interviewing. Like I'm interviewing, what's this person trying to do? And I'm just like a bulldog. What are the problems? I mean, you know, what's slow, challenging, all the normal things. But what is going wrong? And then what are the root causes of it from that? It's just like, it, it's, um, I just think it is such a powerful idea. And when I, I learned that directly from you, I remember exactly the context. We were netting uh, outcome statements together, which is kind of a, it can be, I think it's kind of, if you enjoy this, it's a fun process because you're obsessing <laughs> over language yeah. and you're, you're making sure you're, you, you, you've got the accurate, accurate uh, outcome statement. But I had one in there that was increased the likelihood of some good thing happening. And you're like, no, Scott, we want the purpose of outcome driven innovation is to help a customer to accomplish the job perfectly. These statements should be about removing the bad things, not about adding the good things. And I, that is, is, that is as big an idea as anything I've ever heard, certainly in innovation. Uh, well, the good news is it thanks. works, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's like that's engineer talking about it. It, it, yeah. it works. It has to work. Yeah. But yeah. It's, a it's a mentality <laughs> that you carry through interviewing, you carry through the netting, you carry through really every, every part of it. I found that to be a, a very clarifying uh, important concept. Yeah. Yeah. Scott, what we've done recently too, is we've, um, well, I say over the past five, six years or so, um, you know, in the interviewing process as well, uh, we, uh, we, we, we're trying to eliminate netting, right? You know how much mm. time that takes. I know as much as you like that, you know, a lot of people <laughs> don't, but, uh, but there's a way to eliminate netting and that is to never write a bad statement. Mm. Yeah. Right. So that, this mm. is where we are now is where, you know, as you go through the interviews mm. and we're having, you know, we're typing it in, letting them see it, we can validate it and validate the language and everything in real time with customers. So we're not sitting there later debating, uh, did they mean this or did they mean that or whatever? It's all done in real time. So it might, take, is... it might take five minutes to capture one outcome statement, mm. but that's okay. If there's a hundred outcome statements, you know, it takes you 500 minutes to capture all the outcomes in the market. 
that is really time well spent. Mm. I can I just I mean I feel I mean this is this is how I I really learn because I think it's 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 a learning process as well. You really have to learn to think in these terms and you have I mean that's I sat down and then you have to listen to the interview and write those sentences but I feel like there is so okay let me re, maybe rephrase the question. I think I feel like the true power of 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 well then in the end ODI or, or then jobs to be done is really it lies in these outcome statements. I feel like people get fascinated by um hole in not the drill but the hole in the wall which is kind of the core idea of jobs to be done but then but then what like what's the next step and then i think this this beautiful invention that you had of these outcome statements which really brings a i mean a precision into 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 language and then and then um, scott you mentioned it kind of on the side you said we're obsessing about language here and i think i think that is exactly right that is what's happening here but but that part then is for most people really really difficult. It's really hard to wrap your head around. It's like wow, how does these? I mean, the way I learned this was for me it was really clear. Like so, okay, that's the job. These are the metrics, and then you have to just you have to just train the way you write and think. And that as a kind of I mean, as a philosopher, that's that's what I do. I mean, I spend a lot of time thinking about how to write. So that was I love this about the method like instantly. But I feel there is a disconnect. There are people really that's what most people so much struggle with with the rigor of that language. But I mean, I don't mean this as a criticism because that's exactly the power and the beauty of the process. I mean, once you have the quantitative result and and you know exactly what the unmet need are is, I mean, magic can happen. Like <laughs> honestly, so so the, the I, but I feel like that's really that's the hardest part of everything. Really grasping what exactly is an outcome and 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 why should we spend so much time about about precision here? Yeah, you're exactly right. That's the key point, right? You know how granular granular do these statements have to be in order to be useful right i'll just use this diagram here you know uh what we often see is when people do jobs be done they they yeah. might they might get the first step and then that's sort of it right i've seen this yeah. a lot like it's like what job a customer's trying to get done okay and they'll go out and do 60 interviews and come back and debate what job the customer's trying to get done to me that's the starting point right we're just that's we're just getting going here right what they need to do is then break down the steps like we talk about in the hbr article from 2008 and then we got to capture all the outcomes and when i show these charts so here's an example so, so just for the listeners we're, we're yeah. showing uh, the steps of the the what's called the job map right just so uh, people can visualize uh, yeah that's exactly right yeah. and what we're showing is the steps associated with um the job of a surgeon who's trying to remove an anatomical structure, right? Mm -hmm. And as you look through here, you can see the job steps like establish initial access, gain visual access to the structure, define the pathway to the structure, navigate the barriers to the structure, terminate the blood supply, so on. You can see that none of these talk about solutions, right? They're all showing what is the surgeon trying to do? Right. Yeah. And then as you get into these outcome statements, like number 25, you know, minimize the time it takes to locate the vessels that are feeding the target structure. A very specific instruction, yeah. right? The, the surgeon saying, hey, what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to locate the vessels that are feeding the structure. And that's time consuming, right? So if you can help me minimize the time it takes to locate those vessels, 
I could get the job done better, right? So that's that's one example of 150 outcomes associated with getting this job done, right? And and that's the level of granularity that we're looking for. So this uh, actually brings me to a topic that I am um, very, that I was quite excited to touch upon, sure. which is the topic of selecting, you call it market selection. So how do we actually choose the the job? Uh, because, for instance, if I look at locate the vessels that are feeding the target structure, this could potentially, it seems to me, uh, be a job in itself. So why, uh, how do we choose choose the job? Uh, what, yeah. what are the approaches that we can use sure. for that? So you're only choosing a job up at this step here, where you're defining the job, right? So keep keep that in mind. Once you define the job up here, by definition, these become job steps, whoops, and these become outcomes, right? So what you're struggling with there is getting this right, right? Exactly, yeah. All right, so now, so there's two two key ways to look at this. One is um, if you're already in a market or you already have a product in mind, then you want to do what I suggested earlier, come to something like this. We call this the market definition canvas. I use the circular saw example, right? Whichever job, or I'm sorry, for whichever product you're producing, ask the question, you know, who are the executors? Hmm. What's the function of the product? What other products do they use in conjunction? What is the job they're trying to get done? Now, what I often do in interviews uh, is I'll, I'll, I'll look at this in advance and maybe come up with five options and then that's the starting point. When I go into the interview with customers, I'll say, hey, we know you're using circular saws and we're sitting around speculating that these might be the top reasons. You know, Do any of these resonate with you? And they may say, yes, yeah, number four, that's why we're using it. That's the job we're trying to get done. Or they may say, uh, Tony, uh, none of those are the reason why we're using the product. And that becomes the start of the conversation to figure out what is the job they're trying to get done, right? And we'll try to reach consensus amongst a number of people. And once we have the job in mind, then we go on and we create the job map, right? Because next we want to know what are all the steps in the job. Now, as we're creating that job map, generally we're doing it with the same people who told us what the job is. That We may end up second guessing what the job is. Right? How often, I mean, this may be, okay, but how often are you wrong? Uh, in, the, in us coming up in with the job statement? Yeah. Oh, most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't don't get me wrong. You know, we've been doing this for years, but it, there's no uh, there's no replacing the customer's view, right? We can think certain things all day long, and every day we learn. It's like, eh. that's why I don't. I don't even get. That's why I start the conversations like I do. I said, chances are these are wrong, but just don't do any of them resonate. But see what it does when I show them five variations. All these yeah. statements, these statements are all uh, stated in the same way. You know, as a as a verb, object of the verb, contextual clarifier. So I show them five options of statements, all stated the same way so they're learning that i'm trying to capture a job statement in this format right yeah so even though none of those might be right they have a sense of what i'm looking for and then so that guides the conversation and it may yeah. take 
an hour. I, I, I've done, Scott, you've seen this too. It may take two days to figure out what is the job they're trying to get done. But it is self-correcting. Like if you get that wrong and you start building out the job steps, things won't make sense, right? Yeah. And and once you get to the outcomes, you may find you have 20 outcomes in a step. You go, hmm, maybe there's two steps here. Or you may have three outcomes in a step and go, maybe that could be combined with this upstream step and so on. So, I mean, you learn as you go. Um, so the first but, the first way to yeah. to to frame the the study and um, uh, I mean it's, it's, uh, define the job to be done is to if you already have a uh, you're already in a certain industry or you have a, a product that you have in mind such as a saw you may ask the question what is the job that yeah. this saw helps my customers do you make a few hypotheses. Then you go and check with some some customers to to see if that makes sense for them. Yeah, that's right. That that's that's great. And so, what would be the uh, the, the second in the second case when yeah. you you don't have a product? Okay, in the second case, if you don't have a product or a technology or anything, let's say you're just you're you're trying to pick a market. You're open to anything. You're open to any group of people. You're open to any job to be done. We call that market selection. No, um, it's a different exercise altogether, right? So what you're going to do is you're going to come up with alternative markets and judge them against some criteria. Uh, on our website, we have a, um, a market selection criteria list. I think there's 42 in, embedded in the Excel sheet that can help you pick out one market over the other. Like, for example, would you rather focus on a market that, that's comprised of 3,000 job executors or 300 million job executors? Uh, would you rather focus on a job that gets executed once a year or five times a day? Mm. So it's 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 market selection in mm. job space, right? So the criteria all looking through that same lens of hey, I'm sitting over here as the hole maker, right? And so you you can lay out all your different options and pick a market. Now, what I see in the jobs you've done space is a lot of people conf confuse or conflate um, market selection with market definition. So let me just spend one minute on this. Uh, you've all heard this, I'm sure. Um, people don't want the quarter-inch hole. They want the quarter-inch hole. Well, maybe they don't want a quarter-inch hole. Maybe they're trying to hang a picture on the wall, or, or maybe they're trying to make their room more productive, you know, area more productive for work. All right. Now, what happened there is we went from a market definition exercise to a market selection exercise. If you're a drill maker and and you're the product manager for the drill line. You're responsible for growing revenue in the drill space, right? So it's very legitimate for you to go study the job of creating a quarter-inch hole, right? That's what you're going to go study because that's how you're going to learn how to create a better quarter-inch hole. Now, do your customers want to hang a picture on the wall? Maybe. But now that's a market selection decision. You're not in the market of putting a frame on the wall. Do you want to be in that market? Right. Now go to the market selection exercise, right? Like I described, right? So I, I know that, that I, I hear that all the time, and I think it it confuses what jobs we done is all about, right? It's conflating market definition, which is the goal of in Levitt's quote, right? People don't want the drill; they want the hole. Let's define the market around creating the hole, right? That's legitimate if you're if you're a drill manufacturer, if you're a frame manufacturer, studying creating a hole in the wall probably won't do much good either, right? So you want to study the job of 
projecting an image on a wall or whatever the job might be as defined by the customer. Yeah, this is, this is, I feel like, and, and I've always wanted to ask you this question, but this is, you use this metaphor of jobs to be done as being a lens or a perspective. I mean, that's a metaphor to describe jobs to be done. And I felt, I, I don't know when I read this for the first time, but I felt like that was, that was so on point. Like that, I don't know how, so I would really be interested in how, like how much like thinking went into use, using that metaphor, because I really think it's, it's, so why do I think it's so great? Because it is exactly as you're describing, you're making a, a, a choice of where do I want to look from at what? And that's exactly what it is to have a perspective. You may, you take it, you change the perspective, you can change perspectives, right? Yes. I can move from here to there and look at the same thing from a different perspective. And all that kind of, so the metaphor of it's a lens to look at, but I, 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 I love that, that, that you choose that. So I would be really interested how, like, what was, was that by chance or is it just, did it lend itself to that? Because I think it's exactly right. You know, uh, I can tell you a story of that because it goes way back. You know, I, I was reading a book years and years ago on um, Einstein, this theory of relativity. And it talked about how he would do thought experiments and he would picture himself sitting out on the end of a beam of light traveling through the universe at the speed of light. And he was, he would try to envision what, he, what would he see from that perspective? And I always found that fascinating. I thought, well, perspective yeah. is powerful. And so uh, when, again, back in those early days uh, when I was in Australia and thinking through this stuff, it, it, that occurred to me again. It said, what would the world look like if we just look through the lens of the whole maker? And I just dedicated myself and just flipped the switch in my head and said, I'm, I'm never going to pollute my brain again in solution <laughs> space. I am, I'm going to see everything through the lens of the whole maker. And it required me to create this whole different language of innovation to see so everything we, because we talk about needs and segments and markets. We talk about all the same words that everyone uses, but we have a different definition for every one of them because they all look very different when you're looking yeah. through that lens. So uh, to your point on, uh, yeah, it's, it, it was uh, not by accident. I, I, you know, it's really uh, a dedication work hard to see everything through that lens and not trail back into solution space because it's so easy to go there. Right. Yeah. But now I, uh, you know, I, I don't have to worry about trailing back into solution space, but um, it's, I think that's the challenge. Yeah. And one yeah. thing I think perspective is such a more powerful concept than a popular uh, notion today of empathy. And I'm not, not that anything's wrong with empathy, but I don't think empathy is as useful and actionable. It's it's not as as perspective, like literally seeing like seeing functionally the things they're doing. I mean, it's nice to have empathy for people, but I I, I don't personally find it to be as as useful as actionable. And that's what and and by the way, that's that could be a metaphor for back in the early days. Reading about Christensen, I loved it. Jobs be done. I mean, innovators dilemma and solution is wonderful. But I didn't know what to do tomorrow. I didn't know yeah. what. I didn't know what. Okay, what do I do tomorrow with this insight? And that was what ODI did for me. I know what to do tomorrow. I have. I have. Here's a process to to work through. Um, and it, it makes me think of one more thing. We're getting toward the end of our time here, Tony. I know you've observed this over the years, but there's you know there's something 
there's something about ODI that gets some some there's some segmentation of people that <laughs> see it and immediately get like super excited and drawn to it. And we're the crazy people that are harassing you and, you know, and, and, and um, blogging about it and whatnot. What is it about this? What is it that makes people in common? What is it about the segment of people that sort of just almost immediately get so enthusiastic about ODI? That's a great question. You know, I think they share the concept that I'm brought up of perspective. It's like once you get yourself because I've had people explain this to me. They said, I had to read what you were saying two or three times, but once I could put myself in that perspective and see everything through that lens, it, the switch flipped. And when the switch flips, it's like, you can't go back, right? You, yeah. you can't see it the other way again, because you've, you've seen it through this new lens and everything looked really different and powerful, right? Because you can get a very different understanding of what a market is and what needs are, what segments are and how to come up with the right solutions and all that. It's a, it's just like a, a, a very different way to think. Now to your point, Scott, I think it's a small segment because it is a very different way to think. And it's, it's anti ideas first. right? Yeah. And I have to say ideas first is really fun. There's nothing better than just brainstorming ideas at, at nobody's expense, right? And there's no bad ideas. And But the problem is, of course, there's thousands of bad ideas. And, uh, you know, innovation should be, uh, the output of innovation should be a process, uh, should be produce something that always wins in the market instead of fails nine out of 10 times, right? So clearly there's bad ideas and we're trying to avoid them. But, you know, I, I think it's I, another way to say this guy is I think it's a mindset. I've thought a lot about this over the past five years and we've spent, I've spent the last uh, couple of years rewriting a lot of materials for our training courses and things like that. And I have a short course that's on mindset. That's it. It's about an hour long. And the goal is to talk about markets and needs and opportunities and segments and strategy through this lens just redefine those five basic things and once you see it like i said the switch might flip or it might not right mm -hmm. so i don't think it's for everybody uh, i think we're just naturally wired to solve problems in solution space and it's an extra difficult discipline to try to stay in problem space long enough to you know flesh out you know a solution the way we're doing it here but if any of you guys have more insight into that, I would love to hear what you have to say. <laughs> I was kind of, well, maybe one answer is there is a certain set of people in out there that have the same kind of unmet needs. And then they were naturally yeah. drawn to the solution. Oh, like that's, that could be one of the stories about why, yeah. why yeah. ODI, but, but, but probably, yeah, that only goes so far in the explanation of, of, because I really think it's, it's, I mean, for me, it's like almost, okay hole in the wall and the drill in the hole in the wall is like, it's like a little window. And once you open it up, there is a world behind there. Right. And, yeah, and, and, yeah. and ODI is really this, this, I mean, you, you open, you take away the blinds and then there's the world. Right. So that, yeah. but, and, and, and I think it's kind of that, that I think it's that yeah. perspective switch. So it's really this changing of, of I'm yeah. seeing the world in a different way. Well, I've met two different kinds of people. I think who, uh, who, get into jobs to be done and, and feel a fondness for it. Uh, the, I think the first are 
people who have tried uh, mirroring your experience, Tony, uh, who have tried building a business or who've tried putting a product out and it failed. And I, I think quite a few people uh, come to it from there. And the, I think people who are more in on the marketing side of things also uh, are drawn to, to jobs to be done because they have this thinking in terms of they're already trying to think about, okay, uh, what is the problem people are trying to solve and um, this high level kind of goal thinking and, uh, and the needs and all this, I think. So from my experience, there's been a lot of people, the people who push back against it a lot in my experience are <laughs> designers, uh, which have a lot of pushback against, um, against jobs to be done. And actually I was wondering, I mean, what you are constantly evolving the, the approach you've been, uh, uh, changing bits here and there and constantly making it better. What are you, uh, what are the, the, the things that are in your mind right now regarding ODI and the direction it should go in? What are the, the things you're thinking about, uh, what do you want to improve in your process at the moment? Sure. So the, uh, you know, the process itself, uh, the key components like defining a market, defining needs, prioritizing, segmenting and applying it um, are in pretty good shape. You know, they're, they're in steady state mode. Um, what we're spending more time on is applying it across the ecosystem and talking about the ecosystem. And so we can define the ecosystem uh, I call it the the market ecosystem and then the the broader ecosystem. But um, it goes back to what we were looking at uh, earlier. And if I could bring that back up, the the different types of customers in the market, right? You've got the, the job executor, you've got the purchase decision maker, you've got the product lifecycle support team. And what we spend more time on is um, working with clients, doing things in a certain order. So for example, um, we generally start with the project with the job executor so we can come up with the right product concept. Once we know what the product is, then we can go do some research for the developers on the consumption chain jobs, right? Once we've designed the product correctly, now we can go to the purchase decision maker, understand their financial outcomes and put the product launch plan together, right? So we're kind of layering out so that you don't have to do everything at once. We're trying to make it as simple to apply and adopt as possible uh, and i'd say that's you know at a high level that's where we're at today um, the process is great uh, odi uh, i say what we're working on now is how do we get it installed like if we put ourselves on this map here we're looking at this installation process how do we install odi inside an organization and to that end what we did um uh, a couple of years ago was we did a ODI study on uh, companies, uh, innovation managers who are trying to build an internal innovation capability. And so we know what the job looks like, where people are underserved and all that. And our, our innovation build, uh, capability building program is designed to address those unmet needs, right? So we have the process, the process has been vetted for 30 years, it's in great shape. Now we're focused on the installation of the process and uh, so that we can you know, push adoption. Our goal is still to change the way the world innovates. You know, Scott, we've been saying that right, all these years, right? That hasn't changed. And I think we've made some pretty good progress, but um, yeah, there's still more work to go. And uh, understanding 
the installation issues has been really eye opening. Um, because, like you said, you know, it's um, it's a perspective. You know, we're trying to change the way the organization thinks. It's hard to do, right? So uh, you know, we've developed uh, some courses, like I said, just for that purpose. How do we change mindset? And then how do you use frameworks? And then what are all the rules and guidelines to conduct ODI? And then finally, how do you conduct customer interviews? And so we have those first two courses complete. Uh, they're already they're available online right now on demand. Uh, the third course on all the rules and uh, guidelines will be uh, up and running early next year, and then the the final piece will be up by spring. And so, what we're trying to do is to make it possible for organizations to change the way their organization innovates. And and, and here's one interesting piece of insight. While most people have to have a mindset shift, only a handful of people have to know how to go conduct customer interviews and capture need statements and do ODI. You could have, we, we have companies of you know, tens of thousands of people that have 10 ODI practitioners that take care of, of everything, right? I, I saw an inverted slide the other day that said, you know, the percent of people who do discovery versus the percent of people who do ideation versus the percent of people who do development and then launch. And it was like nobody up front, right? Yeah. And everybody downstream. Yeah. Now, that didn't bother me so much because I think it's actually accurate. Like, I, I don't really think you need hundreds of people trying to conceptualize the winning product, right? You just need the right data and then do the ideation work with the right extended team to create the product concept. It's, it's not... All, all we're trying to do here is to say, hey, instead of using whatever you've been using for customer needs, use outcomes. Everything else is the same, right? People have been creating products for years. Companies are great at creating products. They're just not great at creating the right products. And if you just take this new input and plug it into your system, that will fix the problem. Yeah. That's that's a simplistic view of how I like describing this. But of course, there's a lot of challenges it, in making yeah, that happen. I mean, that tiny slice there install is a huge job. <laughs> I mean, that, I mean, that is all the cultural change. And I mean, that's, it's huge. And so if, if you at any time happen to have that data, I would love to see it. <laughs> well, I think that's a fantastic though. Like, I think that makes as completely logical as the next step for ODI and, and, uh, and for strategy and review, Tony, you know, all these years, 30 years <clears throat> affecting this process, and now to Jan's point, you know, change management, that's a pretty, that's a, you know, getting these folks to use it uh, or implement it. Um, that's a, it's lofty, but hey, what, you know, if it wasn't challenging, anybody would do it, right? So yeah. I, I think that's, that's a, I was, I was also wondering that sort of what's next. And I think that's a, a fantastic vision. I think that's something that should keep, keep you guys a strategy busy for a little bit, because there's a lot of companies, um, my gosh, um, who could who could benefit, and all of us as consumers. I've just gone. I've gotten to experience the patient's journey recently, and I've gotten to see a lot of imperfections. And so, you know, it it does when we use better products that help us get our jobs better. They make our lives better in some way. I mean, so I think you know, and uh, so I think there's a I think there's a you know, we 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 get interested in ODI and we get together, we talk about it, we love debating the minutiae things, but I think it's worth stating that this really does help improve the lives for people. So uh that's that's uh 
It's I think it's a it's also a lot of fun. Along the yeah. way. I, don't... I, I agree with that. You know, I, I think those are the two key things. They've kept me very motivated over the years is to see new products come out that uh, help people live better lives. I mean, yeah. what, what better way to contribute? So I, I think that's excellent. And just the mental challenge to try to think through, uh, you know, making the language work, making the process work has been super fun and motivating. Yeah. I'm not going to, I'm not going away anytime soon. So. <laughs> well, good. Cause we're counting on you. Well, this, this has been so fantastically fun. Uh, I knew this time would go by. I knew it would go by quickly, and I knew I would have a high percentage of questions we didn't get to. But maybe, we'll, maybe we'll arm wrestle you and try to get you back in here again sometime. But I want to mention a few things. Uh, find what customers want: the book 2005 or Jobs to Be Done: Theory to Practice, both available on Amazon. If you're really lucky, you'll have Business Strategy Formulation, the original book. I've, I've grabbed a couple copies up myself because it's not in print, but I recommend that one as well. You can follow Tony on Twitter at Ulwick. That's a pretty good that's a pretty good Twitter handle to have. You must have been early into that. You can certainly learn about ODI with Tony's firm, Stratagen. It's, uh, it's like strategy with an N at the end, www.strategen.com. And with that, Tony, we have one, one final question. If we were going to, back in, back in the day, you might remember we had our Stratagen users conferences and we had folks around, you know, which was a lot of fun. If if we were going to have another uh, another ODI conference um, or if you were going to assemble together business leaders and we, we wanted to, I love your thought about mind shift, you know, and we were going to watch a movie as part of the festivities. Uh, what movie would we watch that might help or might even if it's just entertaining, what movie would we watch together? Let's change mindsets. Or for whatever you want to do, whatever your job to be done would be as part of that. Oh man, that's a tough question. I don't <laughs> know, Scott. I, 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 I'm not much of a movie watcher. I, I think we're, we're going to have to make our own movie, right? You know, how to innovate successfully every time. All the better. I remember when uh, you, you you participated in one of the user conferences years back, and your yeah. presentation was excellent. I, you know, I'm going to leave that up to you. I think you could put the entertainment <laughs> package together. You're, you're really good at it. Oh, it was a lot of fun. It, that, that, that was a lot of fun. Uh, yeah. I was as nervous as I've ever been in my life, but that was, that was a fantastic experience. Okay, we'll do that. But when we get our conference together... I'll be the I'll be the entertainment. <laughs> I, I like it. Yeah. Well, fantastic. Oh, this is so much fun. Well, Tony, thanks so much for taking this time with us. Without question, you're on the Mount Rushmore of jobs to be done. It's not the topic of innovation itself. I've learned I've learned so much from you. Um, you know, there's there's different people that I just really learned a lot from in different stages of my life. Early on, it was just dimming, you know, in the mid 90s, I found this guy, Min Ambassador, taught creative problem solving. And then honestly, 2005, what customers want. And so it's sort of weird to think about. And I know I tell you this all the time, but I'm appreciative and I just I can't help but saying it. So uh, thanks so much for that. Uh, thanks for all the kind words. I really appreciate that as well. Very nice. <laughs> Excellent. And with that, friends, we conclude today's Product Quest podcast. Please send any comments or ideas for future shows to productquestpodcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. And, yeah. and I mean, I can only say what Scott said. I mean, I think if you hadn't done the work you've done, my life would have been completely different. <laughs> so. <laughs>